I spent the last 10 years teaching corporate America leadership and teamwork. Now, I've left my 9 to 5 job to help as many people as possible become leaders in their work and personal lives. Some say leaders are born, but I say they're built. This podcast is the beginning of my mission to create change on a massive scale. Join me and follow along as we explore leadership, teamwork, and growth together. My name is Brian Rollo, and this is Lead with Impact. Hi, and welcome to Lead with Impact. I am Brian, and I am happy that you were able to tune in today and join me. Really appreciate it. We have a special guest in today's episode. We are going to be joined by Kurt Schneider. I think you are really going to enjoy getting to know Kurt. But before we do, let me tell you a little bit about him. Kurt has a really great biography and history, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about it before we get started. Kurt has 26 years of leadership across a multitude of industries, ranging from the military, corporate, nonprofit, and consulting sectors. Kurt has consistently employed the same foundational strategies, regardless of sector, with high success rates. Kurt is a Service Academy graduate, and this experience over four years laid the leadership foundation from which to build. Early in his career and upon being commissioned as an ensign in the Navy, he was selected as the U.S. Navy liaison to the French Navy. And we'll talk about that. Kurt was assigned to a French warship in southern France and met one of his main mentors, Raphael. Raphael was a French naval officer and a commando marine, an elite special forces unit within the French Navy. Over the next 11 years in the U.S. Navy, Kurt was recognized for both his leadership abilities and ways to bring others together. He was subsequently selected to be a liaison with the Italian Navy, Canadian Forces, and the U.S. Air Force. These assignments gave him opportunities to learn and grow even further. While not working with foreign forces, Kurt was an engineering officer and engineering instructor and served on three different U.S. Navy warships. Out of the Navy, Kurt spent time in corporate positions until he started working with youth competitive rowing programs and served as a consultant. While working with nonprofits, he was able to turn organizations around, increase recruiting, revenue, and most importantly, performance, all through similar approaches to leadership, which he honed over the years. Using time-tested methodologies, he has built many champion scholastic rowers and has won multiple championships. His rowers have been recruited to colleges, qualified for the national championships, and competed internationally. Kurt runs his own small company and is currently developing leadership and process improvement solutions. Additionally, he is developing digital media solutions in multiple sectors. He is still coaching rowing, too. He graduated from the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, Kings Point, New York, with a B.S. He also holds an M.S. in Leadership and Business Ethics. Leadership and Business Ethics from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Kurt resides in Crofton, Maryland with his wife and children. So let's meet Kurt. I'm looking forward to it. We are fortunate to have Kurt Schneider with us today. Welcome, Kurt, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, Brian. Happy to be here. So we just heard about your biography. There's a lot there. Can you tell us what made you start out on your journey? I think the first thing that really started me out in my journey was uh, just different experiences in my life. And it came to that 
uh, point in time where you go from young age to now you're going off on your own to college. And I had an interest in the service academies. I knew they'd be a very tough road to hoe, uh, but I put myself out there and I was fortunate to get a congressional nomination to both the U.S. Naval Academy and the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. And there were also other normal schools where a lot of my friends went. Um, In the end, I ended up selecting the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. And uh, just like any service academy, they they bring you in, they break you down to really uh, the bare metal, and then they want to build you back up. And when they're building you back up, I think every person takes a different approach. Everybody kind of reforms themselves differently. And, uh, and for me, I learned a lot from a lot of very smart people I had, uh, that was able to mentor me at that school, uh, a lot of my peers. And uh, really, I think what it was, I just really wanted to do something different with my life. And I wanted to help really just better people as a whole. So I think that's what really took me down that journey. So you decided to go down that road. What was that like? It was very difficult, uh, quite frankly. Uh, it was a very humbling experience, uh, but it was a rewarding experience at the same time. And the further I got into it, the more I actually enjoyed it and took on leadership roles, both in collegiate athletics and then, uh, looking forward to paying back my education. I knew that everything that I had learned and gained and gave me a base foundation, I wanted to pursue active duty in the Navy. And that's what took me on 11 year journey through that leadership experience as well. And also uh, really just a learning, uh, almost like laboratory as well. So you got through the academy and then you were selected to be a liaison for foreign countries military. Can you tell us what that was like? Absolutely. Uh, my first experiences with the French Navy, uh, how it came about was a very peculiar set of circumstances where I didn't think I was qualified, but uh, they reviewed my file and they thought I was. So when I flew over to the embassy, U.S. Embassy in Paris, I was briefed on what I would be doing, who I'd be working with. And a few short days later, I was flown down to the southern coast of France and uh, in Toulon, France, one of France's main naval stations. And there I was assigned to a French warship and I was assigned to a French officer who was my liaison. Uh, This gentleman didn't really particularly care to have a young American who spoke poor French alongside him, and he did the bare minimum. And I was fortunate enough to have a very seasoned French officer uh, and actually an elite commando um, in their special forces within their Navy that saw what was going on. And he really stepped in and uh, really mentored me, guided me. And I would say uh, Raphael was a really a a beacon of light into how I do things even to this day. Uh, Just this display of empathy and understanding and really just true mentoring. Um, So I'm very grateful for having the ability to work with Raphael. Well, I would like to hear more about that, but I want to step back for a moment before that because I just want to make sure I and our listeners have the picture. So you got out of the service academy and you were sent to France. And from what I understand, you were there by yourself, basically, as the only American there? Yes, there was actually one of my classmates from the academy. He also was selected. We went over together. Um, However, once we hit the embassy in France, we were briefed on our separate itineraries or assignments. 
he was sent off to a different location than I was. That to me sounds a little bit intimidating. When you first get out of the academy, I would think you'd be looking to others for sort of guidance on how to on how to become great at what you do. And you were basically separated, it sounds like, from all of your support system. It was. And it, you really, uh, my feet truly were to the fire. And it was just like when you're a little kid, you're learning to swim with water wings, you're on your own, now you're treading water. Um, in this instance, they just said, hey, Kurt, why don't you come here? And they threw me right in the deep end. <laughs> so I really had, I really had to put it all together quickly. And, um, but, uh, but in, in the end though, it was a wonderful experience and, uh, it was just, I would do it again in a heartbeat. So tell us a little bit more about Raphael. You were looking for some guidance. He comes in, he serves sort of as a mentor for you. What did that look like and how did he help you? Sure. So Raphael knew that I spoke very poor French. And he spoke great English. So that was a great foundation right off the bat. And Raphael uh, almost did his own collection of French officers who wanted to assist me to help me more than the, some of the other French warships uh, officers. And so Raphael would go over, bend over backwards to make sure I was involved in if it was anything dealing with uh, his background and exercises or if I was included in social events and he always made sure that there were at least one or two uh, very well-spoken English, or I should say French officers who spoke English very well, that were always by my side to assist me and help me. So I truly was not left adrift. Uh, and Raphael did not have to do this. He even went as far as introducing me to his family, uh, to meeting uh, after work hours uh, out in Toulon. Uh, so just to really give me the social aspect, the professional aspect, and really just make sure that that I felt I was being taken care of, mentored, uh, and most importantly, supported. And that was really the uh, definition of empathy, where he could envision his himself in my shoes and, and really kind of looked at from a third person what I would be going through or what he would be going through. And he did a great deal of effort to make sure that um, he thought forward as much as he could to make sure I was taken care of and supported. Raphael treated you with empathy. How did that affect your view of leadership going forward? Sure. Raphael taught me a dear lesson in empathy in that if you must, one of the core foundations in my belief to really connect with a person or a group of people is you've got to be able to see things from their point of view. You've got to be able to put yourself in their shoes, see the challenges they're facing, what they're going through, or what they're trying to overcome. And by really having that ingrained by Raphael, uh, it really set the uh, a solid foundation moving forward, what I would say every other piece of leadership is built upon. That led you to lead with empathy. And then I saw you mentioned also how respect and trust factor into that. Can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. So it's kind of a ladder, how I use leadership in my different uh, scenarios uh, and how I've tailored it over the years. So what I believe is first that you must have You've got to have empathy present and empathy is natural in some people and some people it can be a learned trait. Everybody can do empathy. Uh, some people, well, they may not want to do it uh, because of that bad E word I'll talk about shortly. But uh, once you have empathy and you you've sort of had that connection with a person, we'll just say one person right now. Well, then you show respect and respect is a two way street and it truly is not given it must be earned on both sides of the table. So say if I was in a, 
in the Navy, um, one of my Navy assignments, that I knew I had to gain the respect of the other person and the person had to respect me. And then once we had that in common, then we could take the next ladder rung and that's trust. When there's trust, the other person knows that you're doing what's best for them. And then say, I trust that they're willing to follow my mentoring and uh, just accept my inputs or mentoring as, as necessary. And then once you have trust taken care of, then you move up to loyalty. And loyalty is where I think that's the most critical, important stage of leadership. Uh, just because that with loyalty, you are in essence uh, establishing sounding boards, as I call them. And you know that you can talk to them and they would give you sage feedback and vice versa. And also, you know that this person is pretty qualified now or at least has the foundation principles or a mission of an organization at hand that you can go out because if you're a leader, if you try to do everything yourself, it, it just, it's too much. So this whole ladder of empathy, respect, trust, loyalty, really what it is, you set people up for success and you really are delegating duties down. And then once they can now do that to another person in their future and they delegate it down. So in essence, the organization runs more efficiently um, it's more functional. It's more open to creativity and just being open-minded in general. So really, you are creating a well-oiled machine of true leadership uh, and efficiency. That's brilliant. And I love the concept of filtering down. You start at one place and you know it becomes contagious and good things start to happen. Now, I want to ask you a question. And mm-hmm. It goes back to a, a previous interview I did with uh, Morella Borson. She was a police lieutenant, and she talked about emotional intelligence and how mm-hmm. important that was. And I, I asked her, I said, this might be a stereotype, but when you think of police departments, you don't think of emotional intelligence. So and she, she agreed. So let me ask you this question. When you think of the military, empathy might not be the first word that comes to mind. And maybe that's a stereotype. So, but, so forgive me, but can you talk about how that might fit into the type of setting you came from? So I, I guess I'll start off by saying this. Emotional intelligence, I believe, is uh, it's very important. I've known a lot of very smart people with high uh, you know, IQs, but they just cannot connect. They could not get that bond They would go out, they'd read a a number of books, they would go to three-day seminars, and just something wasn't connecting. They just couldn't connect with a person. And again, I think it's because, part of it's because that bad E word, which I'll get to a little bit, uh, because like I said, there's empathy, the good E word, and there's the other, the dark side of the moon, that E word. But I believe uh, emotional quotient and intelligence in general, I should say, is... Again, some people are born with a more natural degree of it, but again, it can be developed in anybody. And and I think it comes back to, uh, just like the interview you did with the police lieutenant, is you've got to be able to take a step back and put yourself in their shoes. But in the military, some people are, I mean, the, the great thing about the military is you have almost every um, socioeconomic status you can imagine. You have ultra-wealthy backgrounds, you have very um, economic hardship backgrounds and everything in between. And then, so you have really, you're working with people from literally all over the world, uh, even the United States military, because there's people that will come to the U.S. military 
And if you serve for approximately five years, um, you're granted citizenship. And so there are, uh, it's just really a unbelievable laboratory of, of, I guess, research and really triumph. But I guess getting back on track with a question with um, emotional intelligence, again, the people who pick it up or who soon develop that once, again, we do that, that trust ladder, uh, the empathy, respect, and so forth, that they can actually uh, have a more enjoyable job and they can have the people working for them uh, basically be more uh, enthralled and more motivated to show up to work every day. Makes perfect sense. So you've mentioned this a couple of times. I'm curious to find out what is what is the bad E word? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm dying to find out. I uh, know. Okay, here it is. So the bad E word is egotism. The mm. ego. That is the, we all have it. It's in there. It's in the subconscious mind. You know, numerous research studies have, have proven it. Some people are able to keep it, so to speak, uh, you know, with, with its muzzle on and tucked away. And some people, they just let it unleash. And to be a true leader, when you have the ego, um, I'll give you a, a great example of when I went back to graduate school to study leadership is at the academy, all the, the physics and calculus and a lot of things I really didn't have any interest in. Uh, but I said, you know what, if I go back to further my education, I want to do something I'm really interested in. And so here's how really the ego really set my, uh, just sort of got my attention. I was probably about 10 years in the Navy, nine years in the Navy when this happened. So I was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia, which is one of the largest U S Navy bases in the world. And I knew a couple individuals on multiple ships. But in, but in specific, there were these two brand new warships, over a billion dollars each. They were clones of each other. They were essentially parked right beside each other um, on the pier at the naval station. And there were about 320 people who work on each warship. Well, on the first warship, I knew one individual on there. And those 320 people loved going to work every day. They were empowered. They were motivated. They had very high reenlistment rates for people wanting to stay in the Navy after their initial contract was done. Uh, the commanding officer really set the tone. He was a very just outgoing uh, servant leader who would do everything he could to get people under him promoted, to give people time off, to recognize them for their efforts. And it was just a great place to go to work. Warship B, or number two, it was the opposite. 320 people almost dreaded going to work every day. And it really, like a pyramid at the very top of the pyramid at the apex, you had the commanding officer. This commanding officer was completely different than the first one. He was a narcissist. He was egocentric. It was all about his career. He didn't recognize people. He would work them long hours. He didn't even remotely uh, pay attention to anything that they did. It was only about trying to, what could his crew do? How could he stand on their backs and their shoulders to achieve that next career milestone? Um, they had uh, dastardly low reenlistment rates just because that people's first assignment in the Navy, they're like, if it's like this, I want nothing to do with it. And uh, so it was really just a tale of really, you know, two cities because you had, as I call it, uh, the bright side of the moon and you had the dark side of the moon. And that really got my attention on how somebody with empathy, 
as their foundational kind of uh, mantra could set the tone and better so many people. Whereas somebody who uh, subscribed to egotism or let ego really take the reins of control in their decision making and putting themselves before others, putting themselves ahead of everything and how that trickled down very quickly and they really negatively affected over 300 people every day. It's amazing the impact that one person can have, isn't it? It, it, it truly is. It truly is. And there have been other experiences that I've known being stationed in San Diego and you know, trying to be very impartial and not using specific names or worships. But there was a worship in San Diego that has a similar problem with um, just like the – individual I mentioned where it was very ego-driven, that individual left the worship and his replacement was a very, a very positive person doing the right thing. And within months, that worship completely turned itself around and it was like a different place to go to work every day. That's crazy. You know, I've had the opportunity to work with both types of leaders. And uh, one of the funny things about how you so nicely put it, the ego-driven leaders is sometimes they will call me in and they'll say, Brian, we got a real uh, culture problem, mor- a real morale problem. Come in here and give a speech or do a training and that'll fix everything, right? And <laughs> they, they sort of think if I come in and give a 15 or 20 minute or 45 minute presentation that it's a magic uh, button that is going to turn everything great. And I'll, I'll tell them, I'm pretty good at what I do, but if you don't change, nothing's going to change in the long run. And, and sometimes the ego just doesn't let them see it. No, it, it doesn't. And I think it's very important for the listeners to also, as this hasn't been touched on, but I have, like I said, I have completely transparent. I've had so much success as a leader, but yet I have failed multiple times as leader as well. Um, I've had anybody that tells you that they've never failed. Well, they're not being honest with you. Um, I have failed multiple dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And at first I was frustrated and upset. Uh, but as I alluded to, um, Captain Herb Wolf, the uh, Hawaiian commercial shipmaster captain, I got a chance to work with him while I was at the Merchant Marine Academy, one of my internships. And he was also, he and Raphael were, uh, they were were cut from the same cloth, though they were, one was in Hawaii, one was in France, and they did two different professions. However, uh, Captain Wolf taught me that it's okay to fail, but when you fail, fail forward. And when I would make so many mistakes, just so many mess ups, and he would say, okay, he's like, first thing, Kurt, what did you learn from it? And at first I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, well, I learned I messed up. He's like, no, no, no. You learn how you messed up, but also you need to learn how can you prevent it in the future or think even further, if this happens in the future, what is an option A and an option B to avoid it? So Captain Wolf also was one of these pillars of success for me and really just mentoring. Uh, but yes, it's it's very important that Everybody fails, and but important is to pick yourself up and keep moving forward because learn from it. Um, you know, thank the universe for the opportunity to learn from it, so you don't doesn't happen in the future. And just you just keep honing things down and and just keep moving forward and refining your techniques. Yeah, without a doubt. And it sounds like you were very fortunate to have two outstanding mentors. I, I was, and there are other mentors over the years as well. That helped me, both uh, academy staff. Um, you know, there was a Commander Dave Munn. There was a Commander Eric Wallacecheck, um, who I'm sure they'll be listening to this because I'll, I'll tell them to listen to this podcast. But they were very instrumental as well in, 
Um, and I sure, surely made my mistakes at the academy as well. But I think it's just something you just keep trudging forward. You know, you get up, you dust yourself off, you learn from it, and you, you keep moving forward. You speak also about belief, recognition, and support. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So, um, so with the belief, recognition, and support, I think I mentioned that term. Coal went to diamonds, and I'll, I'll pick one specific example, and I'll, I guess, I'll try and be very thirty-second uh, version of it. There is an individual on a warship. He did not work for me. He was a young enlisted sailor, and he had gotten into trouble numerous times. His father had a career in the Navy, was very successful, so people were scratching their heads. Why isn't he following in his father's footsteps? He was rebellious. He was, uh, you know, just sort of like uh, the person that people didn't want to work with. And what happened was I had a, a duty one day on the warship. They keep a skeleton crew, as we call it, you know, an engineer, somebody in combat, somebody in operations, uh, maybe you know, I don't want to say the number for um, operational security, but mm-hmm. it's enough to get the warship underway in the event of an emergency or, say, like a hurricane or a weather event. So I just happened to be really just walking around the ship one day. I was in charge of the ship that, that particular Sunday, and I encountered this individual. And I'm like, you know what? I've heard so many bad things, but he seems like a nice guy. He just, just doesn't seem like he has whatever's going on. So I spoke with him. And he, it, came, it turned out that he didn't really like his job in the Navy. He didn't know what he wanted to do. So he sort of came in undesignated where he could work in a certain area and then he could specify from that point on. Um, the area he was in was not known for positive work areas or ethics, not ethics, but a positive work environment, I should say. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And he's like, well, I'd really like to come down to engineering. At the time, I was the chief engineer in a Navy warship. And I was like, you know what? Why not? I said, okay, I'll tell you what. Why don't you come down? I said, I'll work, get everything cleared up on the ship. On Monday, tomorrow, you report uh, to engineering. And tonight, think about where you want to go. Because there's different areas of engineering. Uh, There's like the mechanical side. There's like this uh, electrical engineering side, gas turbine systems. So it's very, uh, a lot of variants. So he came in one day. I'm sorry, the next day at work. And I said, okay. I said, what do you want to do? He's like, I want to work with these guys and the kind of general mechanics. I said, okay, sounds great. So I talked to the, um, subordinate supervisor I had. I said, Hey, here's, here's the deal. Um, you know, let's give, let's give this guy a chance. Let's, you know, work with him. I said, okay. Everybody was on board with it. And about, so when he came to us, he wore his uniform, I wouldn't say sloppy, but very, um, just kind of ragged just getting by. I mean, he was a master at just getting the minimums on appearance, on time, qualifications, what he had to do. And when I started working with him, I said, how, how are things going? He's going, well, they're going really great. And he's like, you've talked to me more in the last like three days than people have talked to me since my six months on board the ship. I said, okay, well, we can change it. That's easy. So what happened was I started saying, give him more responsibility, train him. Because it's almost like an apprentice-type program, and if he shows promise, we can send him to very advanced Navy schools to get him officially trained in that area. So the belief was, I believe that everybody can be turned around, and maybe somebody's just not on their court or their student music where they need to be. And then as he started doing good work, I started recognizing him for the recognition piece. I would personally find him and say, I heard you're doing a great job. Like, this might be a natural fit for you. Really just giving those positive affirmations. And just reading him at the same time. And he was very appreciative. 
And then for support, he's like, well, I want to learn how to do this. Would you send me to this school? I said, sure, we can do that. That's like a four-day school here in Norfolk, and that's easy. We can do that. So out of that whole belief, recognition, support, um, he came to us really kind of a, as a piece of coal, uh, you know, just sort of like dirty. Nobody wanted to deal with him. Uh, just get him somewhere else. And within, I'd say probably three months, I believe he was selected. So the Navy has their equivalent of like employee of a quarter. Um, so I think he was sailor of the quarter. He wore his uniform that he could have been a poster child on any Navy advertising material. And he was advancing rapidly. So within about three months, he went from somebody who was disenchanted to somebody who was ultra power, ultra empowered, motivated, driven. And now I saw him actually mentoring people younger than him on how to find out what they wanted to do. So uh, that was truly how just, you know, one person's belief, my belief, and to give the guy a chance, he just truly blossomed into something great. And that had to be rewarding. It, it was, it was. And I think, and like I said, there's a lot of buzzwords in leadership, but I, just my whole life, I believe I have been a servant leader. And a servant leader is basically putting others before yourself. Um, I got more, um, I guess, happiness out of seeing that him turn himself around than say receiving an award for something, an award at whatever. But when you can see the impact you're making and to better somebody's life, and really to help guide them on the way and really to say, hey, I've made so many mistakes. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version so you don't make the mistakes I did and so you can advance even further and faster. It's beautiful. So there's been so, so much more I'd like to talk to you about, but I want to ask you one question about mm-hmm. rowing. We heard about your history with sure. c- competitive rowing. How can that – how does that play into leadership? For me, uh, I was a walk on the rowing team, the academy. I was fortunate to have – I had uh, my American coach, uh, Dave, and I had my Soviet coach, Dimitri. And so I learned under two different systems. But in rowing, growing up playing soccer and baseball, uh, it's, it's a little different. In rowing, you're sitting – everybody's right behind each other. And you truly have to move as one. And when one person makes a mistake, the whole racing shell – uh, feels the ramification of the effects of it. So you have to have the perfect balance, the perfect timing, the synchronicity, all the rowing and stroke mechanics. And it's just, you really just have, it's like clockwork. And so what that taught me was, was to be tolerant of other people's mistakes. And likewise, for people to be tolerant of my mistakes. And it really taught you to set and press through goals. It taught you really the essence of teamwork and leadership. And to really when you have everybody firing on all cylinders or really in synchronicity on the rowing shell in a race, you can really achieve great things. And so I think that really was, uh, like I said, in, in soccer, somebody make a mistake, ah, we'll, we'll cover for it. It didn't really affect me. I'll just make sure I don't make the same mistake covering my, you know, my guy and other sports as well. But with rowing, um, there's no reset. There's no timeouts. Once the race starts, those people in that racing shell, they start the race and they finish the race. So there's no substitutions. And uh, so it, it really just teaches you to work in small uh, dynamic groups and put you know, others' mistakes to the side and you get a feel for how people do things because every rower has a little bit of quirkiness to them, um, just how they do things. Everybody's not perfect. We are human. We are not you know, all 
come firing off the same brain at the same time, but we try to model ourselves after, say, the person in front of us. And, uh, and that usually leads to successful rowing. Um, and then as a coach, uh, different things with the, uh, coaching, again, I, I took those same leadership principles over my life and rowing and put them together. Uh, and now from the coaching standpoint, you know, you're tolerant of, uh, you know, people's mistakes because, hey, they're just starting out or they're going from intermediate to the advanced level. Uh, but again, you kind of tie everything together. And again, you got to show the empathy, the respect toward the kids, and then they get the trust and the loyalty. And it's just really, it's the same. I don't want to say it's the same recipe, but you can use the foundations of the same principles and recipe for success anywhere. It's incredibly valuable. Let me ask you one general question. And we sure. ask this of all of our guests. Mm-hmm. If you could send a message to yourself 10 years ago, what would you tell your younger self? Sure. Two things. Um, don't be afraid to fail. For, for years, I was afraid to fail. And when you're afraid to fail, you're, you're not really truly giving it your all. You're all. You have like this reserve of, well, I don't want to give up, put, you know, I'd go all in because I might fail. And so you're really not applying yourself directly. And the other thing I would say is, uh, yeah, definitely don't fail and um, fear. Don't have fear of failing or don't have fear of anything in general. Don't have fear that, well, oh my gosh, I've never, you know, been in this situation or look at the competition. Uh, for me, it was in rowing that fear came because I was coaching against teams who had very elite rowers, um, former Olympians from this country and other countries, uh, current and former Olympic coaches. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like I was a division three rower and I don't have nearly this, but like I can put different aspects of it together. Uh, but what really taught me to kind of put that fear aside and that I could stand on my own was I had a, I had four high school boys. They were, and these were not like lacrosse players or wrestlers or linebackers. All these kids were in the band, skinny glasses, just started to row. Um, we had the oldest equipment. Uh, the racing shell took on a little bit of water, made it a little <laughs> bit heavier, old, the old, old equipment from like 15, 20 years ago. And, but they were doing very well. They were beating everybody. And there was this, uh, the top four varsity boys in the team. I mean, one of those guys in that boat was six foot five. He's now rowing at Dartmouth. Um, so he's an Ivy league rower. Another guy's at Georgetown, Wisconsin, top division one schools. Wow. And the coach said, and he, they were getting coached by the Olympian and the other elite coach. And they said, well, your kids are pretty good. Let's just see, you know, how far behind they'll finish to our, to like our top boat. And I remember my kids were petrified. They were, I guess, seven weeks of rowing. And these kids were, the other kids were juniors and seniors getting elite instruction. And uh, they're like, Coach Kerr, like, I don't think we can do it. And I said, listen, I said, I'm going to say one thing to you. I believe in you. And... I said, just row your best. I said, don't care. Don't worry about them. Just focus and do what, you know, what you know how to do. Well, long story short, they simulated a, um, a sprint race, which is about 1500 meters. And they beat that very, uh, it was truly David and Goliath. They beat the Goliath boat and they beat them by probably about four or five seconds, which statistically shouldn't have happened. Wow. And, and again, you know, those other kids, Olympic coaching, the best equipment. I mean, just they, they were, they had everything going for them. My kids sort of like the bad news bears, <laughs> young, 
I know one kid was gifted in piano, so he couldn't even make practices every day. <laughs> Another played trumpet in the school band. And it's just like, and you look at it, you're like, how in the world did these kids beat those kids? And like, I don't have the knowledge of the Olympian. I, I, that's a fact. And, but when you really peel back the layers, of the onion, what really comes out is that that coaching environment was more harsh. It was more metal to metal, as I call it, where there was, you know, like, we're going to keep doing it until you get it right. And if you don't like it, we're going to keep doing it even harder. Mine was more supportive, more, uh, more positive induced and just saying, if my kids didn't get it, Hey, you know what? Let's take a break. Let's do something else. And, you know, we'll come back to it later on practice. Try it again. So they weren't afraid to fail because they knew that that's okay. We'll try it again. We'll try it again. So what I have found is teaching engineering in the Navy, coaching kids, working in a variety of professional aspects that if you have a, um, a calm, respective or respectable environment, people learn better. They learn faster and they learn more permanently than in a, we'll say a fear induced environment. Well, that's a fantastic lesson and uh, really inspirational. So how do you help people today, Kurt? Well, what I do is I actually, I have a small, uh, I have a small company and I'm involved in a couple of different aspects outside of leadership, but I still uh, look to help others. I actually just signed up to be a, uh, help out my volunteer fire department. Um, I did have a lot of firefighting training in the Navy, but um, I'm going to try and help them out in different aspects even if I have to get a, a, we'll just say a very deep reserve uh, volunteer firefighter to helping <laughs> with their administrative books and things that I'm really good at, um, kind of improving processes and strategic operations. Um, I was going to start coaching again. I'm, I'm putting on hold for a little bit. I had another job offer to coach master's level adults um, who have rowed usually competitively in college. They still want to keep rowing. But I stepped away from that to really focus on my business and help out the local fire department because as a volunteer department, they uh, they need some help. They don't get all the heavy funding that other departments do. And uh, and I still do like consulting as well. So I kind of have my hands in a little bit of everything. Well, it sounds like it's keeping you really busy. If people want to find you online, is there a place where they can interact with you? There is. I actually I'm actually building a comprehensive website because I have a parent company. And then I have some um, some kind of offshoots of that. But right now, uh, my website or the best way to get in touch with me is just an email. And that is Kurt at OakleafLTD.com. So K-U-R-T at O-A-K-L-E-A-F-L-T-D.com. Kurt at OakleafLTD.com. Thank you. That's that's it. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. We had so much to talk about. We didn't talk probably about half of what I would have liked to talk about. So maybe uh, at another time, we'll get you back on and we can do this again. That sounds great. And like I said, Brian, I, I'm very grateful for being here. And um, like I said, I think the only message I want to spread is believe in yourself. Don't be afraid to fail. If you fail, fail forward and don't have fears about things that you think you can't do because deep down inside, I think we're all capable of doing so much more than we give ourselves credit for. And that was Kurt Schneider. And that was Kurt Schneider, everybody. And that was Kurt Schneider. Schneider. And that was Kurt Schneider. And boy, I got a lot out of that interview. I don't know about you, but I learned so much. 
I loved his story about his mentors and how they went out of their way to help him. I really liked his contrast, too, between empathy and then the bad E-word, ego, and uh, how you can really master those to help lead people. So all in all, really valuable, and I want to thank Kurt again for coming on the show. That will wrap up this episode of Lead with Impact. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and on brianrollo.com slash lead. If you have a moment to log into your favorite platform and rate and review us, that would go an awful long way. So thank you for whatever you can do. I've enjoyed this. I hope you have as well. Go out there. Have a great day. Lead with impact. And I will talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.